Broadcasting on the Quarantine FM airways every Sunday from 11am to 11.30am. We'll be covering the major political issues of the day. Well, when I say the major political issues, I mean the major political issues through our eyes. Like, uh, how many left-wing parties are there in Ireland? What would it take for us to go into government with Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael? And if we're very lucky, I might coax my co-host William into reading some excerpts from Josepha Madigan's erotic novel. Now, in future episodes of A View from the Ditch, we hope to have some esteemed guests... But for today, I'm afraid you're stuck with myself, James Larkin, and the handsome political fanatic sitting across from me, William Dalton. How does that all sound to you, William? Sounds good. Oh, great. So we will get some of uh, <clears throat> Josephine Madigan's erotic novel out here. Well, why her erotic novel and not her former constituency colleague, Alan Shatters? Oh, wow. I think his was just a normal novel with an erotic scene. Is that so? Yeah, so and I want, you know a bit more breadth of uh, material to choose from. We could also get you to maybe sing uh, some of Paul Gogarty's hits. Well, I mean, I don't see why we should get me to sing them rather than hearing them directly from Paul Gogarty himself. Well, uh, that could be arranged. And maybe we could get Josephine Madigan to read some excerpts from her book, huh? Who knows? Who knows? So, today we're going to have a discussion about the state of the left in Ireland. But before that, will we have a brief chat about uh, the week that was, the politics that were? Hmm. How does that sound? Uh, before we do that, can I just uh, give you our email address in case any of you listeners want to get in touch? It's a view from the ditch at gmail.com. Yes. So, Please send out all corrections, death threats, etc. Yeah, stop sending them to me anyway. Right. William, lots to talk about. There was a US election debate, there was the mother and baby homes, there was the small matter of a level five lockdown. Hmm. <coughs> What, what, what would you like to get started with? I actually want to talk about, there was a recent report about election expenses in the 2019 European election. Uh, I told you we get into the major political issues, huh? Yeah. Oh. <clears throat> I'm not sure if you saw this. Oh, I briefly saw Sir McHugh tweeting about essentially how little she'd spent compared to the big wigs. Yeah, there's, the figures were published. So 10 of the top 11 candidates by election expenditure were Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. I think it's notable. Highest spending campaign was Maria Walsh. Classic. Uh, you, some people might remember her videos. Jesus. They had to pay for those videos. My God. Tamagotchis. Who remembers Tamagotchis? Vote for me. Bloody hell. Yeah, that's what um, 200 grand in election expenses Christ almighty. gets you. Is that type of material? There was an article in the Indo where they were talking about some of the sort of don't know, juicier items that were counted as election expenses by different candidates. For example, Kieran Cuff spent €100 Euro hiring an electric scooter. <laughs> it's very on brand. Is it? Isn't it? You know. How so? Just, you know, it's green. It's uh, 
Electric scooter? Yeah. What about just a manual scooter? Ah, uh, William, come on. Manual scooter would be so passe. It's all about electric, you know, electric cars, electric bikes, electric scooters. Forget the manual stuff. Fair, fair enough. What else we got, huh? Yeah, just, I'm just striking. The figures are, are large, large sums of money. And, well, tell me, do they, do they get those back? Like essentially, all of that money back if they get above a certain percentage. A certain proportion of a quota, you get up to forty thousand or so back. I oh, think. Oh wow! So they it's really not... pump a lot of money into these things. So that's the election expenses. What about the mother and baby homes? That's been a serious issue over the last few days. Yes, a very controversial bill introduced by the government in relation to the Commission of Inquiry. One of the things the government is arguing is that if this legislation isn't introduced, the records are likely to be destroyed. What Maeve O'Rourke was saying was that there's no reason for saying that. that there, no, it's totally there should arbitrary be deadline. In, indeed, it's a self-imposed deadline. Um, I, survivor groups, I think, are very angry about this proposal. And I see there's a there's an online petition that as of Saturday has around 50,000 signatures. Whoa. 55,000. Where is that? Uplift or...? Uplift to Minister O'Gorman, repeal the seal, open the archive. Well, it seems like classic majority government, you know, ramming through legislation to minimise coverage and to... That's true. The question is, why not accept amendments? Why not listen to survivors' groups and and other groups, you know, who've been advocating in this area for, for decades? It is odd. I haven't seen any theories on it. Maybe we shouldn't start adding theirs. But the state is generally good at protecting itself. Can we say that? Yes, I, I'm willing to, <laughs> yeah. willing to say that. Anyway, it brings us nicely on to the main topic for today's show, which is... I think it does, because, you know, it's, it's the Green Party are kind of stuck in a, between a rock and a hard place in the legislation, and it does seem like they'd be on the other side of this issue if they were not in government. I see. So, the Green Party would describe themselves as a left-wing party, and we're going to well, talk about... They would describe themselves as a left-wing party. Well, no, Eamon Ryan has taken pains to say that the Greens are neither left nor right. There, there, there have certainly been people within the Green Party who consider themselves left-wing, but but it does it does go to the question of left or centre-left parties entering coalition and under what circumstances should they or are they willing to do so? Super. So, like we would have been saying, we've given ourselves a bit of a softball uh, for our first topic of discussion. Um, on a view from the ditch, so that's the state of the left in Ireland. Yes, it's a fairly well trodden topic in Irish political discourse, but maybe not a bad place for us to start. And today, the former Senate nominee of Liam Cosgrave is intractably opposed to coalition pacts, believing that Labour has suffered immeasurably by its involvement in government with Fine Gael. 
I think it has had a terrible uh, time in a number of ways as it had to cut back its socialist program. It has lost membership. It lost, I think, a certain amount of credibility to some extent with, in its, uh, and with this was reflected in its ability to uh, capture a significant proportion of the young vote which one would have hoped for. And I think that the practical policies for the Labour Party at this time are socialist policies and that it simply cannot be seen to waver from that path. And if it does so, to my mind, it will have lost ground again. And I really believe that the Labour Party is poised in a very exciting time that it can develop, but that it will not develop unless we are straightforward in what we're aiming for. So that was the unmistakable voice of our fearless leader, Michael D. Higgins. So is that where you want to jump off, William, with Labour, or, or is there somewhere, <coughs> somewhere else you had in mind? No, I, I, think, I think that is uh, where we should start. So there are those who would say, why would you even mention Labour in a discussion on the left? But I do think... Careful now. It's, well, but I do think um, it's important, if nothing else, historically, because for most of the history of the state, certainly in terms of a, a working-class political voice in the Doyle, they were the only game in town. The clip there, I think, is interesting, because it's Michael D. in 1978, talking about how coalition has harmed Labour, and how they need to set out an independent course. And since that clip was re recorded, they have entered, entered coalition uh, as a junior partner five uh, times. And how, how many times, was four of those times Michael was uh, a member of their party and even a, a minister? Uh, he was a minister in the 90s, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And he, president during the fifth. Uh, true, although... As president, he he stood down from the party and was the president for all. Uh, but but anywho, the state of the left, given given they've gone in five times, would, would as a man of the left, would you consider any of those entries a success for the left? Well, I don't think any of them have been a success for the Labour Party itself. If you look at it, very strikingly, nineteen ninety two and two thousand eleven, there were these huge surges of support to Labour. The spring tide, so-called, in 1992, where they had a record number of seats. Uh, they went into coalition with Fianna Fáil, which was regarded as a betrayal by many of their supporters. Then the Rainbow Coalition, and uh, they hemorrhaged support in the su subsequent election. Very similar to 2011, um, where they had, again, they, they got more seats again than, than Dick Spring. They were clever. Under Gilmore. Gilmore Gale, was that it? I, I don't remember what the slogan was, but I but it is the case that in each of those cases, 92 and 2011, there was kind of a, certainly a suggestion in the campaign that, in the first case, Spring, in the second case, Gilmore, were a genuine um, candidate for Taoiseach. You know, mm -hmm. they weren't just going to be a support, play a supporting role to Fine Gael or anyone else. Yeah, kind of the way Mary Lou was in the last election. Uh, yes, as as opposed to two thousand seven, where they where they had a a transfer pact with Fine Gael. You can see there, Michael D. in seventy eight is identifying a phenomenon that would be repeated, but it had already been evident. In you know the interparty government in forty eight, in the sixties, they built up a lot of support with slightly more left wing rhetoric and policy under Brendan Corish. Then seventy three, they go in with Fine Gael and burn most of that support. Mm. 
so it is uh, there's a definite pattern here and and I suppose the question is why was this the best the Irish social democratic left could do when we were very much an anomaly in Western Europe um, there's an article that both of us looked at by Peter Mayer from 1992 where and, and the figures are very stark like the on average the Irish left at about a third of the electoral support of the rest of Western Europe. Also, oh, so they had the left in other countries in Europe. Well, many of them had three times the level of support. No, the average combined across all the others right, right, right. was was uh, across the decades was around three times what the left broadly defined was getting in Ireland. And even then, it's arguable. Well, we can come back as to you know why that vote was probably being sucked up by Fianna Fáil. But it's arguable whether you know how, how left wing their party even was. You know, I imagine I imagine the left wing parties in other countries were, you know, more left than, than Labour. Labour. I'm sure that's the case, and that's the other thing is the distinctively <laughs> sort of conservative character of our our Labour Party. There's a quotation from um, the, the historian Neve Perchale, uh, you know, has written a book about. Um, the history of, of labour, which I think is the standard text on that, and but she she wrote a very good kind of article um, for Jacobin, the 1916 edition they did, and there's a quotation from an American historian described the Irish Labour Party as quote the most opportunistically conservative Labour Party anywhere in the known world. Jesus. That was in 1964, and then but she goes on to talk about how they were very deferential to Catholic social teaching um, at, at various points. Well, if you wanted votes, I imagine uh, <clears throat> that was a necessary quality. That, that was certainly the view of, of the, the party leadership. So, so what's, what's the story of the Workers' Party? Didn't they, did they merge with the Labour Party? Or? The, the Workers' Party, like you, yes. Catherine Murphy, was she...? <clears throat> Catherine Murphy was, was uh, a sticky, as they were known. Um, the Workers' Party. And did they get? They would have had some votes. And they, they they would be more of a radical left. Okay, so so the Workers' Party are an interesting one, in lot in lots of ways. They they're probably the most electorally successful radical left party. There's ever been uh, in Ireland. Not probably. I mean, they are. They had seven seats in 1989, but they emerged, not out of sort of the classically left-wing context of class politics, but out of the, Repub the Irish Republican movement, the split in the, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the IRA. You know, they, were pro, they were a pro-Soviet uh, party, including young radicals like Pat Rabbit, <laughs> Eamon Gilmore, among their TDs. So, but, but what, what happened with their... What happened was, <laughs> to cut a long story short, what happened was, after the collapse of the Soviet system in 1991, a lot of sort of communist stroke Marxist-Leninist parties had identity crises and turned into um, social democratic parties. In That took the form of what was called democratic left, which went into the Rainbow Coalition in 94 with Labour and Fine Gael, wow. and a couple of years later it, it just folded into Labour itself. And many of the Democratic left group that went into Labour became very influential mm. in Labour, including obviously Rabbit and Gilmore becoming leader. Yeah. So <clears throat> there is that 
shall we say, indirect influence of the radical left on Irish politics. Yeah. So then, so then we've talked about you know so uh, the collapse of Labour, but what's come in this place is you know a bit of the rise of the radical, what you might describe as the radical left. I'm not sure how they describe themselves. Uh, you know, well, I suppose PVP rise solidarity. Socialist Workers Party, should we call them that? Well, the Socialist Workers Party is no longer the name of the organisation. It dissolved itself into what is now called the Socialist Workers Network. Oh, yeah, well, um, potato, potato, huh? So what's the difference? You know, we, we, we spent about 10 minutes there talking about uh, the Labour Party. What's the difference between them and the left that's, that's emerged over the last, maybe the last 10 years, the, the water charges, etc.? Yeah, so, so since the crash the financial crisis you've seen the development in electoral terms and also in terms of their presence in social movements of, of the more radical left um, which is a much more oppositional force uh, it's totally you know as in general condemnatory of the idea of coalition with the conservative parties but it's also, and it's almost a cliche to point this out, but it's riven by internal factionalism. Notably, notable example, you know, almost a comical example was in 2011 you had the United Left Alliance, um, an umbrella electoral alliance, and it split a couple of years into that, the term of that Doyle, and more parties emerged from it than had entered into it. <laughs> so what, who, what did they split into? Well, there were splits, like, it was formed out of, without wanting to go into all of it, it was formed out of PBP, the Socialist Party, Seamus Healy's Workers and Unemployed Action Group, oh, yeah. and there was Declan Bree in Sligo. Shortly after that, Claire Daly left the Socialist Party, and Joan Collins left PBP. And they formed United Left, not to be confused with the United Left Alliance. Um, so yes, the, the left came out more divided than it had been before. And we should say, we're, we're speaking about this as outsiders, as, as hurlers on the ditch, as it were. That I think it's fair to say you and I have maybe participated on the fringes of social movements, but we've never... Pinned our colours to the mast. Huh? <laughs> no. In, in, this, in the sense of party politics. So at the risk of criticising from the sidelines without trying to help in any way. Wouldn't be like you, huh? Yeah. It's with that um, caveat, I suppose, that we're, we're offering these remarks. Um, and the, the left, there, there have been a number of splits more recently, like you mentioned Rise. Paul Murphy left Solidarity and formed this new group, um, Rise, which, you know, sort of pitching itself as an eco-socialist organisation. You've had other splits emerge from PBP. Um, there's a group called Independent Left now. And, and it's, it actually mirrors uh, the situation in in Britain where there are um, if you think we have a large number of small Trotskyist parties, you should see 
um, you should see the Brits. But is that splitting an obstacle to success? Because um, in ways it also, on um, the important issues, they tend to unite. That's true, but then the question is why not have a single democratic organisation that makes decisions collectively, that operates as a, as a, as a collective unit? Yeah. Um, you know, the political differences between these, the small radical left parties, I think it's fair to say, are not comprehensible to the general electorate. No. Um, so it starts to look like the vanity of small differences or differences among personalities involved with the organisations rather than differences of principle. So, so do you think it's going to be, like say, projecting 10, 20 years in the future, is it going to be a big obstacle to... And I, it does seem like they, they even think this themselves that is the major one a major obstacle to greater success politically. You know, you see the the right to change movement. They are trying to unite the left. It just seems very difficult. I think lack of unity, a failure splits and failures to unite are not I'm not I won't even say I I could say they're the principal cause of of um the weakness of the Irish left, but they are unhelpful. You you can you can see how they have uh, hurt the cause. Um, the momentum in, in, for example, the momentum lost from the water charges movement, the right to change movement. There was this, I think, very strong sense of something about to happen um right to change the right to change movement had this congress in 2017 where the almost every organization on the irish left was represented in some way and they were talking about various projects and strategies and strategies of the left and and nothing emerged from that well what, what, what? Uh, as yet uh, we can say uh it is a manifestation of that momentum and that feeling amongst the populace, you know, the, the vote in 2020 for Sinn Féin? I think so. And that brings us on to the question of to what extent are they a left-wing party? I, no. I, I think they're, they're not a conventional left-wing party. They are a left nationalist party that, I, I think as Dan Finn said, has tended to be more nationalist than left. Um, undoubtedly there are left-wing elements in Sinn Féin, most notably Ono Brin. But the then, then there are also elements which I seem to be seeing lately of... It almost seems a bit like Fianna Fáil. Yeah, how do you mean? Well, the meat protest is, is a good example, and climate change. You know, they've very watery commitments on climate change when it's a very important political issue. And I think the reason their commitments are watery is in order to get votes. Sure. It seems like a lot of their policies are based on electoral calculations rather than principles. Maybe not, that's maybe harsh saying a lot. Sometimes I get that sense. But I want you to expand on that idea of the comparison with Fianna Fáil because... Well, the reason I compare it with Fianna Fáil is just they are the ultimate in just whatever way the wind's blowing. Maybe, that, you know, it's unfair that most political parties do that to a certain extent. You know, mm. and I'm just 
feeling it more strongly at the moment because Sinn Féin are, are seeing government in their sights and maybe and also they're getting more attention from the media and I'm probably paying a bit more attention to them so it's just more pronounced meanwhile all the parties are doing that to a certain extent anyway sure uh, um, the other thing that certainly differentiates them from the radical left parties is openness to coalition with the conservative parties mm. that was a division you could see in the most recent election campaign where people like Paul Murphy were calling on Sinn Féin to rule out coalition with the Conservative parties. Mary Lou, of course, was not interested in doing that. No, it seemed like their entire political strategy was based on, uh, you know, we're game to get involved. Maybe partly knowing that the big parties wouldn't talk to them and, so, and essentially using it as a tactic. Um, I think, in a sense, the nature of Sinn Féin is is a topic for another day and hopefully we'll have someone on who knows a lot more about it than us. Well, who's more intimately <laughs> acquainted with these things. If we wanted to end on a note of talking about prospects for the Irish left, despite the historical absence of left government or strong representation of the party political left, there are probably more left-wing TDs right now than at any other time in Irish history. Whether that will result in a socialist government in the... Near to medium term? I tend to... I tend to doubt. Well, let's, let's end on a positive note and say the future's bright, huh? Okay. <laughs> Some of them might even be young TDs. Right, well thanks a million for listening everyone. This has been A View from the Ditch. As you can see, uh, we're firmly rooted in the ditch. Um, and as I said earlier, if you want to get in touch, we're, we've uh, just set up an email address, a view from the ditch at gmail.com. Have I got that right, William? I think so. And uh, you can also get William on Twitter uh, at another underscore abyss. Is that right? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Hopefully, see you next week or listen to us next week. Cheerio. Uh, Thanks for listening.